Hi there. This is Judith O'Day from George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. And you're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. of Halloween. Hello and welcome to the Then Is Now Podcast's yearly 13 days of Hallotober event. I'm your host, Rigor. Joining me once again is podcaster extraordinaire, Rod Barnett. How's it going, Rod? It's going pretty well. How about yourself? It's going excellent. It's going excellent. I'm really enjoying my new job. Well, not new anymore. I guess I've been doing it for a year writing soap opera news, but it's so much better than, you know, slugging around uh, equipment at a hotel for AV stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I have no doubt. I mean, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it sounds kind of like the, the ultimate dream job, how, how very few people get to, to have a, a job where they can honestly say they, they love it that much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy, you know, and it's one of those things that just sort of I, I knew I wanted out of AV. I've been doing it for like 20, 30 years. And, you know, I was looking around I already had kind of had my blog going. And then when I saw this job pop up, I like when I applied, I said I was literally born for this job. I said in my <laughs> application, I said, I've been watching General Hospital since 1981. And I guess based on all that stuff, they hired me. And it's like now I get paid to watch four soap operas a day. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So much fun. So, folks, uh, Juan Ortiz from the B-Movie cast should hopefully be joining us in a little bit, but we're going to begin things here. Last year, uh, we talked about vampire movies, and this year, our topic is werewolf movies. In today's episode, we may actually split into two uh, because we've got a lot of films to, gov to cover, and uh, we are going to focus on the Lon Chaney of Spain, the man who's played a werewolf more times than anyone else, Paul Nashy. And I'm so excited for this as, you know, Rod, you and I were talking off mic that it's any chance to watch and discuss Nashy is always great. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been a huge fan of Paul Nashy for, uh, I was going to try to enumerate the number of years, and I'll be honest, I think I would fail to count them properly. Uh, sometimes since the, the, the early 90s when I got curious about them after reading about him and uh, various cult movie fanzines. So, yeah, yeah, I'm a... I'm a huge fan, always have been, and it's only grown over the years. Nice, nice. Do you, while we're here, do you want to tell the folks a little bit about your shows? 
Oh, uh, well, sure, sure. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, you're probably <laughs> right. That would be a good idea. Um, my name's Rod Barnett. I, uh, I started uh, back in 2010 uh, a podcast called Nashi Cast with a good friend of mine, Troy Gwynn, who uh, here in uh, Nashville, we were the only two people that we knew who were really big Paul Nashi fans. We had a lot, we had a huge group of friends who loved movies of all types, but we were really the only two that gravitated toward El Hombre Lobo. And um, so occasionally when one or the other of us would, get, would grab a, a new bootleg, because back then we're talking the 90s, that was the only way to get your hands on these movies. Right. We would get we would get together and we would watch one or two of them and then just, just enjoy ourselves because, you know, it was, it was too much heavy lifting to try to drag along the people who were rather reluctant to do so. So we, uh, uh, we continued this and then uh, for years we held up the hope that we might one day actually get to meet uh, Mr. Nashi and shake his hand and tell him how much his work meant to us. But then he passed away in 2009 and out of sheer, uh, sheer grief. And uh, we, we decided to create the Nashi cast and uh, we spent years going one episode at a time through a single film per episode, digging deeply into each of them as we went. And uh, over time we've learned uh, more and more about each of these films and his entire life. We've become friends with his family. We've uh, we've gotten to know just so many, many people who are also friends and uh, people who write about him, people who know about him, people who love him. And the the, the joy of that is that the Nashicast also allowed me to branch out, create another podcast called The Bloody Pit, which is an offshoot of my blog, The Bloody Pit of Rod in which I cover every other topic in the world besides Spanish horror, because um, <laughs> there, there, there comes a point when one realizes that even uh, though we started covering non-Nashi Spanish horror films from the, the 60s through today, uh, there comes a point when you also need to be able to talk about, oh, I don't know, universal horror films and every other kind of European weirdness, and Japanese films and Ultra 7 and just whatever pops to mind. Right. So... We uh, we have that going as well. I, I have a, a lot of different people come on and guest on that show, doing different uh, doing different series of uh, films and you know everything from seventy science fiction to uh, oh my goodness what what do we do? oh uh, uh, we're we're currently taking a run through the first six Star Trek films and kind of digging into those with basically our personal views on them and things like that. It, it, it's nice. a free ranging show. And then uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who uh, I've uh, known for a few years, a guy named Adrian Smith, um, who's uh, over in London town, well, close to London town anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he uh, coerced me into joining him for another podcast called Wild Wild Podcast, which uh, uh, does, uh, we, that show's formatted in seasons where we try to cover a particular topic and kind of choose 10 films that fit into that topic. And so we started with Italian science fiction films. That's a weird topic, by the way. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and our, our current season, let's see, we're, we're finishing up the uh, post-apocalyptic or post-apocalypse stuff from the 80s, uh, which has been a lot of fun because I thought I'd seen them all and I was wrong. And uh, 
next we'll uh, we'll do a mini season of just a few films on Jungle Girl movies, and from there it only gets stranger. So uh, you know, I, three podcasts, way too much talking sometimes. Uh, <laughs> there, there's very little there's very little in the, the the cult film world that you cannot discover what I feel about. So it's uh, <laughs> hey, it's for 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 good or ill. That's that's the way it lays out. It's so true. It's so true. I mean, every time I think, oh, I've seen every horror film there is or every science fiction film, that I find like a hundred more that I've never even heard of, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it was just it was just about a month and a half ago that I stumbled across for the first time in my life this amazing Mexican filmmaker. Uh, oh, and I don't know. This is terrible. I'm going to completely butcher his name. But uh, on Shudder, I stumbled across one of his films, Dark is the Night. And... Uh, uh, was just stunned by it because it's this 1975 um, uh, Mexican horror film that you know when you when you read the the plot description you're you're, uh, uh, you're 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 not at all impressed with you know any kind of originality or dark, it's called darker than night yes yes you're not you're, you're you're not stunned by the originality of the plot setup but when you watch the film you realize man this guy really knew what he was doing and so luckily i'm i'm now digging into more of his work uh carlos enrique tobata yes uh, or toabata i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his it's, name. I've got it's to actually to it's extra. taboada there you go good good perfect <laughs> so um the uh i mean but but i was completely blind to to that man's work until this something this you know it's just you know it's like how did this happen you know, how am I still discovering <laughs> things that are this good in this genre in 2023 that have been around since I was, you know, seven? Right, <laughs> right. And it's funny that you brought that up because um, I, I mentioned we had one on my live show, The Fright Lounge, and a couple months ago he was on and we talked about the Darker Than Night and two other Tabuata films. So and it was the same thing. I had never heard of them before, and it was really fascinating. And they were really good movies. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, and it, it's such a. Those are the things you live for, and I hate to say that you get you do if you do this long enough, you do find find yourself getting a bit jaded and thinking, oh, well, I've I probably scratched the surface, or at least seen a, a fair smattering of pretty much everything that's out there. And then reality comes along and just slaps you on the back of the head, going, nope, you haven't. Right. <laughs> You know, and it's funny, and this last thing I'll mention in the introduction here, but the, um, as we were, um, you know, nearing this recording today, I had been racking my brain trying to remember when I first discovered Paul Nashie. Now, I remember when I first discovered your show, Cast, because it was actually a Beyond Cast episode where you talked about um, Horror Express. Ah, yes, yes. And that was my first experience listening to your show and got me, int- in, you know, uh, interested in it and that sort of thing. Um, but when I thought about Nashi himself, I'm like, how did I know? But like, I knew who he was, you know, throughout my life. And I, I, I went a little, I did a little digging. I have this book called Splatter Movies by a guy named John McCarty, mm-hmm. um, which I got as a teenager. I remember bringing that to high school and all the kids were like jealous. Um, but there's like <laughs> literally one paragraph about Paul Nashi in that. And I think from there, I must have read about him in either Fangoria or Famous Monsters or both, and perhaps you know seen some of his movies in the in the TV Guide listings over the years because I know I've I'd seen a couple of them, so I was familiar with him 
really until I discovered your show, and that's when I was able to start to get into it and learn more about who Paul Nashy was. And it, I, I love that whole discovery of, like you said, of these things, these people that we never heard of, and that now there's this whole world of films out there. Yeah, the the fact that these things can still, there could be things out there that are still hidden from view, uh, even, you know, especially for, for people who do get into that feeling of being jaded because they've been searching and been looking and been curious for so long. It's great. And it's one of the things that kind of keeps me um, keeps me interested in, and alive and, and happy about the, the, the fact that I still still hunt for these things. Because in general, one of the ways that I keep that alive is by discussing these things with other people, people because they, they'll have a different perspective. I right. love talking. Uh, I love talking to anybody and everybody about different films that I enjoy because even if we both love the film, that they they their love for it, someone else's love for it, is going to be monstrously different from from mine simply because of their their varying perspective. So that to me is one of the greatest things in the world to do is to just go, hey, well, you know, I my my, my I love this aspect film because of this that and the other and then have them tell me what means the most to them about it. it's great it's great because it you're able to dig into the the love of the narrative and the love of the, the story being told but at the same time about what it does to the individual and how it affects those how it affects you in a way that that makes it as memorable for you as it is for someone else it's it's great because it keeps these things vital and alive something you've seen you know 20 times you can suddenly talk to someone who has a completely different vision of it, but still loves it. And it gives you a view of it that is enlightening and fun and, and, and puts not just a new light on it, but it, it changes your perspective in a certain way because it makes you think about it. In a different way. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, there's so many movies that have, and in fact, we'll probably touch upon that with the Nashi films that where there are, are different themes throughout the film that strike different people differently, you know, no mm -hmm. pun intended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and and one of the things that that I enjoy about some of these films is sometimes just trying to to uh, come to terms with some of the darker elements of it. some of the things that are both built into the narrative and and just built into the period of time in which the the, the film was made, the way that certain things were thought of at that time, and the way in which people played with the ideas that are on screen is great because it, there's there's an almost endless uh, ability to talk about. Any piece, any good piece of of genre of fiction, because it's it's not just what's on the screen; it's what you bring to it. Exactly, exactly. All right, folks, we've got an exciting episode ahead of us, so sit back, relax, and prepare to learn all about Paul Nashi. Okay, folks, as we mentioned, we are going to discuss the films of the great Spanish actor, writer, director, and producer Paul Nashi. We're going to talk about his life as well as specifically six movies that Mr. Rod Barnett has picked out for our discussion. And uh, while he's most famous for playing the werewolf Valdemar Daninsky, we're also going to talk about um, a couple of those films as well as several others that we haven't had a chance to because we really haven't had a chance to cover Paul Nashi on Then Is Now podcast. So I am totally looking forward to this. Um, we do have a lot of films to go over here, so uh, we're going to break this into two episodes, folks. So right now, we are in the midst of part one. So, Rod, since you're the uh, resident expert on Paul Nashi, can you perhaps tell us how he, you know, sort of give us an overview of his career and he got how he got into playing a werewolf or the wolfman? 
Oh, certainly. Um, um, Paul Nashi was born in uh, Spain in uh, 1930, and uh, he's, he's one of those people who grew up, well, actually 1934, pardon me, uh, but uh, I, always th- <laughs> I always think of him as a product of that, of that period simply because of what his country became after the, the Spanish Civil War and how much that kind of influenced everything. Now, you don't need to know that. It doesn't really matter, but here's what it boils down to uh, for, for, for Nashi, which is that when he was young, like so many of us who love monster movies, he got the chance because of a of, of, a, of an uncle to see the, the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman uh, at, at a young age, at an age that was, well, let's just say an impressionable age. And this instilled in him a love for these kinds of stories that carried over into his reading and his just pleasure enjoyment in every film that he could. In every, in every type of genre that he did. So he sought these films out. He sought books out. Uh, he was he was a voracious reader. He was uh, someone who uh, loved this kind of stuff. Not that he didn't love other things as well, but when he got the opportunity uh, in the 60s, he had written a screenplay, a werewolf screenplay, that he was hoping to be able to put in front of film producers. Now, uh, in the 1960s, what it was is... Uh, between uh, you know being born in the mid-30s and growing up um, increasingly under, <laughs> most of his life was spent under the rule of General Franco, a dictatorship there in Spain. Right. You learn different, uh, shall we say, survival tactics, and these would show up in his in the way his films got made later on, especially uh, especially later in his career when he started to chafe at the, at the restrictions being placed on him, but. As a young man, he was a cha- he was a champion weightlifter. He was uh, so- someone who that, for him that was his sport. He was uh, if you ever get a chance to look at him, you can see uh, that is exactly the type of build that he had. He was a muscular, very fit, very capable human being who also was fascinated by movies. So when a lot of Hollywood film productions moved into the uh, moved into Spain to take advantage of uh, different kinds of uh, tax breaks and, ch- and, and cheap labor and, shall we say, the Spanish countryside, lots of things there that you can't necessarily get in other places. Right. Um, he's one of those people who worked his way into being an extra and working on these films in whatever capacity that he could, and so tried to work his way into being, uh, if not necessarily in front of the camera, at least someone who was writing down the things that the actors in front of the cameras would say. Um, so you can actually spot him in an episode of I Spy with uh, Robert Culp in, yep. in, the, in the 60s. Uh, uh, he, he got to, this is a, during a period of time in which uh, Boris Karloff was a, was a guest star in one of, these, one of these shows that he was a part of, and he, got, he actually got to meet Boris Karloff, which, of course, as you can imagine, was a dream come true. And that's an interesting story that he tells in his autobiography. But by the late 60s, he had written a script for a werewolf story and was trying to find someone who might think it a good idea to turn it into a, to turn it into a film. And he eventually did. And uh, although the original idea was to try to entice Lon Chaney Jr., uh, who was pretty much in retirement by this point, um, to come out and play the werewolf character in this story when the German producers who put up the money 
for his first movie, which was called The Mark of the Werewolf or The Mark of the Wolfman uh, and other titles <laughs> that we'll get to in a moment. Um, the, the the realization came pretty quickly that there was really no way to get launching Junior various and sundry reasons. And so it fell to the producers looking at their, uh, <laughs> at their screenwriter uh, who had the, the barrel chested physique of a man wolf to get him to play the role. And that is how he ended up being a horror movie star. His first role uh, in a, well, his first starring role, it wasn't his first role in the film. He'd been in a few small roles, um, some with some real meat on them uh, in, in leading straight up to this. But this was the one that uh, broke him in a big way. And uh, he managed to play the werewolf character, the reluctant uh, monster, uh, Valdemar, Den- Valdemar Deninsky. And um, Mark of the Wolfman was a, was a major hit. And really, for the next roughly 10 years, uh, that was made in 1968, roughly for the next 10 years, he went from project to project to project just as quickly as he could. Uh, just a brief aside, uh, the Mark of the Wolfman is the my preferred title for that first Valdemar Dodinsky film, but uh, the way it was known here in the states is Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. There's a story behind that, but we'll I'll short form it to this: the American <laughs> producer who purchased it to show in the states uh, had promised distributors that he was going to give them a Frankenstein movie. He didn't have a Frankenstein movie, so he <laughs> he, he he bought Mark of the Wolfman, renamed it Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, put an, uh, put a very amusing uh, a little uh, voiceover prelude at the beginning of the picture to pretend that uh, the characters in the film are somehow related to the Frankenstein family. And there you go, movie history. <laughs> That's sort of like, it reminds me of um, when they, what was it, they re-released the, the Tombs of the Blind Dead and they called it Revenge from Pro- Planet Ape. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the more famous ones. That's, it's both ridiculously outrageous, but... You know, what, it, it, would, it would go down in history as one of those things that people, you know, who had seen it or were aware of it or even who had just seen, uh, you know, kind of questionable newspaper ads at the time when some, some distributor had decided to try to, to, to pretend that uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead was a Planet of the Apes sequel <laughs> during the early 70s when, you know, all things ape made just tons of money. Um, but, uh, luckily there, there has been, you know, you, you can see it on most video releases of Tombs of the Blind Dead. There's a neat little extra where you can actually see the way that they tried to pretend Tombs of the Blind Dead was a Planet of the Apes sequel. And, you know, you gotta give people credit for gumption. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, it doesn't change anything I feel about that movie. It just makes me happy that somebody out there was crazy enough to try to make a buck in a strange and terrible way. Right. <laughs> and you know what, too, talking about Nashi and his career as he got into, you know, writing and, and directing and, and stuff. L- let's face it. The guy was a genius because he constantly wrote roles for himself where he'd get to be with these hot naked women all the time. I mean genius <laughs> oh yeah say. i mean uh in in many ways it, in many ways it is the uh the adulthood that every testosterone fueled heterosexual male pictures for himself if, if possible it's like hmm so i'll get to at least roll around in, on on a bed naked with 
most of the women that I meet, this is incredible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How do I do this again? I have to learn to write. Okay. Wait a minute. I can do that. Right. <laughs> well, there's a will, there's a way, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you though, one of the things that has been most enlightening and very, very one, it, it, it's, it's been one of those things that, um, Kind of surprised me in the day and age in which we live, but has always been wonderful to discover, which is that every interview I can find with these beautiful actresses who worked with him on so many films from the in the 70s and the 80s, I cannot find a single one of them who thought he was some kind of creep. Uh, they all loved him and have so many kind things to say about him, and especially when he became a director because he was so protective of his actors and the, um, the, uh, the, I always kept waiting for there to be some story where, uh, you know, there was some, uh, some sexual shenanigans or some kind of, uh, attempt to take advantage of an actress for a role or something like that. And that is not what I find. And, and I, I'm, I'm just really, really impressed by the fact that, um, Many, many people you know, talked about Nashi as being a, a gentleman and someone that they enjoyed working with and someone who was a pleasure to, to do things with. And then you, you hear these stories where these women were th these women who could possibly, especially during that period of time, have been put in a, an un a compromising position. And the stories you hear are the exact opposite. Right. That's, that's kind of a, that's kind of amazing. It's not what I hate to admit it, but it's not what I was expecting. And it's wonderful to know that that's just the way he was. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you could tell too. I mean, he's just got that charisma on screen. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. You know, and one thing too I love about, especially his take on the Wolfman or the Werewolf, is he his makeup and the way he portrays it is very feral, and it kind of reminded me of um, or reminds me of the nineteen fifty six film The Werewolf with Don McGowan where it's got yeah. that sort of animalistic, really, you know, more than, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman, but this, the Nashy Wolfman is far more feral. Oh, very much. A vicious creature, something that is uh, just completely ungovernable. Governable. It's, once, it's something coming at you um, often at times when you, you have absolutely no warning whatsoever. And that is one of the, that's one of the things about it because the, the whole idea of this this man who is cursed with lycanthropy is, you know, it's it's what you know it's what you see in the in the classics of the the Universal Cycle with uh, with Lon Chaney's character, where you're looking at Larry Talbot and this poor bastard, all he wants is to not have this curse on him any longer. And this is, of course, the 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 beauty of a werewolf character is this is a reluctant monster. This is not someone who wants to be in this position, but once that animal is out, it is this ravening beast. You can't stop it. There's, you, you, you can only hope that you survive. And right. even then, even then, is that a good thing? You know? Right. <laughs> oh, man. And one other thing before we dive into the actual films we're going to talk about, I wanted to uh, mention is that I, a long time ago, and I don't know if you've come to this conclusion as well, but I've basically made peace with the fact that the considering he's played Valdemar Daninsky so many times and there's no continuity between most of the films. And so oh, really? the way I, I looked at it uh, years ago was that, you know what, these are just Valdemars from different Earths. They're just parallel 
versions of the same character and we're just seeing a different story on a different earth. Does that make sense? That's not a bad way to look at it. I have, um, I have experience with a writer friend who has, um, well, who has a project coming out eventually. I'm not sure if it's coming out this year or not. I need to check back in with him, but the, um, he very painstakingly went through the, uh, the Valdemardinsky, uh, I'm sorry, the Valdemardinsky um, movies and created a pretty inventive and workable timeline that does not allow you, you know, it's not one character, one person, but it is, uh, he does tie a number of them together uh, where there are, uh, there, there is a, a single person who is the uh, this, the the character of Valdemar Dinsky in some of the films, and uh, you know there are other characters who were ancestors, and there are other characters who were you know uh, members of the family, but you know but but uh, but not the same character in this movie or that movie. And it's a pretty inventive thing that he has done. I kind of that's the, uh, as much as I really have enjoyed uh, reading uh, his his novel that will be coming out. Here eventually, just by the fact that it is an extraordinarily good continuation of the whole Valdemarinsky saga on the printed page, his timeline that he lays out at the beginning to kind of bend his brain to the point where he can place things where he needs them to be and put things where he ha- he wants them to be. <laughs> it's 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 brilliant in that it does effectively give you an idea for thinking about this if you want to. But honestly, you know. Earth, Earth three Paul Nashi or Earth three Valdemar Dinsky that works too. I mean, it's just <laughs> just you know lo, lo, long ago, long ago, what Troy and I used to say on the podcast was you know, uh, you know, all you, all you need to really remember is that this poor sucker, if he doesn't start the movie as a werewolf, he's going to end up as one, and it's going to suck, and we're going to see what happens. And that's all you need to contend with. Right. Right, exactly. You know, and that was like, uh, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent here, but um, I one of my shows a while back, we were talking about um, um, the seven brothers meet Dracula. Yeah, yeah. And the seven brothers and their one sister. And so I was trying to reconcile the Peter Cushing Van Helsing in that. And the way I determined it was that he was sort of either the son or the grandson. I forget what I said, but he's between... The Van Helsing from the Victorian era Hammer films and the AD nineteen seventy two films. You know, he's he's yeah. right in between there. It and it, it, it kind of has to be anything that gets me more Peter Cushing as that character, and I'm good with I'm good with whatever I have to figure out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, folks, so as I mentioned, we've got a bunch of films we're going to cover, and I'm just going to tell you what they are here right now. Um, In this episode, part one, we are going to talk about Horror Rises from the Tomb, Werewolf Shadow, and The Mummy's Revenge. And then we're going to take a break, and when we come back with part two, we are going to talk about Hunchback of the Morgue, The Devil Incarnate, also known as El Caminate, and uh, Werewolf and the Yeti. And, folks, we will probably have tangents into other Nashi films, so... Don't don't panic. <laughs> From the dark and mysterious Middle Ages, full of mystery and violence, there now comes to the screen, fear rises from the tomb, a curse which would bring these people to the most terrifying situations. 
fear rises from the tomb. With Emma Cohen, Paul Nashi, Vic Winner, Christina Suriani, Betsabey Ruiz, and Helga Line in the role of... Ramir. Fear rises from the tomb with all the mystery and terror of medieval rites and witchcraft. <laughs> the infernal powers of evil persecuting these defenseless beings. Only the talisman could free them from the spellbinding influence. Fear rises from the tomb. A terrifying experience. It will take you a long time to forget. No! 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 Fear rises from the tomb. A Pro Films production. Directed by Carlos Aurel. Seven moons have passed. Today we shall take them. I want when the supreme day comes that they are sufficiently prepared for the sacrifice. You know, let's um, let's dive into uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb from 1973, which was written by and stars uh, Paul Nashi, directed by Carlos Aured, who also directed him in uh, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll from 1974, and Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman from 1971, which uh, also known as Werewolf Shadow. We'll get into much more, greater depth in that later. Um, and I will warn you, folks, if I haven't already said it, uh, this is a spoiler podcast, so uh, you know we're going to have the films listed in the show notes, so if you want to check them out before listening, you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give a brief synopsis of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Horror Rises from the Tomb. The, the medieval warlock Alaric de Marnac and his murderous witch companion Mabel de Lancre, I don't know, I think I'm butchering those names... <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. They're both convicted of Satanism and are executed by decapitation together in a field. But before they're killed, Alaric curses the descendants of the men who are putting him to death, threatening their progeny hundreds of years in the future. Centuries pass, of course, and a group of young people travel to the area to search for the grave and possible treasure of Alaric and Mabel. Or is it Mabel or Mabile? It's Mabile and uh, Alaric. Mobile and Alaric, okay. The group is led by Hugo de Marnac, Paul Nashi, of course, as the modern-day descendant of Alaric. They discover a buried treasure chest on the grounds, which they leave overnight in a garage until they can open it. The chest actually contains the severed and still-living head of Alaric, who hypnotizes several members of the group when they open it and uses them to kill some of the others. Alaric forces his thralls to exhume his headless corpse and then has them reunite his head with his body, making him whole once more. Then he uses the blood from one of his female victims to reanimate the skeleton of Mabie. Ma <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> 
<laughs> Mobile. Mobile in her go. tomb, bringing her back to life. At one point, a number of dead victims return to life and lay siege to the house. Most of the party is decimated by the time the last remaining member figures out a way to send Alaric and his mistress back to hell by exposing the monsters to a sacred medallion. So, uh, Rod, as before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the film, what can you tell us about the director, Carlos Arred? Ah, first of all, fantastic. He made four, uh, four movies with uh, Nashi. And uh, he's he all four of the movies that he made with Paul Nash here are excellent examples of Nash's horror films of the seventies. Uh, Carlos Allred was uh, the, uh, the, uh, the assistant to another director that Nash worked with many times. Um, the the uh, Argentinian director. Oh, you're going to need to pause this. I can't believe I'm having this brain. <laughs> it's okay. Hang on. Yeah, edit edit this out because uh, I'm sorry. There we go. Uh, Argentinian director Leon Klamovsky, who made a lot of movies, I think seven or eight with Nashi. And Klamovsky was an, was an excellent uh, technician, a, a good director, and someone who Nashi, as a director himself, learned a lot from. But uh, Carlos Allred worked with Leon Klamovsky, and at a certain point, um, Nashi was planning to go into production on one, on one particular script or another, and um, Klamovsky was tied up with another project and suggested Carlos Allred, and that is how they ended up making four films together as well. He's amazing. A lot of the the, the, the high-quality stuff that you'll see in a Leon Klamovsky film, for instance, Leon Klamovsky really understood how to use slow motion for suspense and tension. Uh, you'll see that in Allred's work as well. And with Our Rises from the Tomb, what you're talking about... Uh, I, Although this is not one of the werewolf movies, this is often the first film that I point people to who are curious about Nashi, but really are kind of starting from zero or close to zero as far as having seen anything. Start with Higher Rises from the Tomb because it's insane. Um, there is, there's a, a description of it that usually goes that it's a, kind of a... a uh, a kitchen sink movie because there are so many different things that are combined into this film that um, somehow or another find a way to work. Uh, it's crazy. The The story, it's not like it's, it's not at all difficult to follow the story, but if you were to try to lay out the details, detail after detail after detail, what goes on, what happens to each character and how different things line up, you would start to sound like a crazy person. Part of that <laughs> is because it is kind of crazy. Uh, don't you know? Don't get me wrong. Our rises from the tomb is incredibly entertaining. You will, you know, if you have any ability to enjoy Euro horror from the seventies, Our rises from the tomb is is going to float your boat. But it is nuts. Uh, part of that is the way in which the script got written. Which is that uh, Nashi? This is this was uh, 1972. So by this time, uh, Nashi was already doing very well. Was making a lot of films back to back. He was uh, writing most of them, and uh, the only times he wasn't writing scripts for the things that he was in front of the camera for is when he was uh, starring in uh, other directors and other producers' films, uh, because he was just at that point constantly working. Right. And so uh, the. Uh, uh, the point was that at 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 a, at, a, at, a, at some point in uh, 1972 or 
1971, somewhere around in there, a producer uh, was talking to him and said, "Hey, you know, we'd like to go ahead and make it, make another horror movie with you. What, uh, what, you know, what's the, what's your next story? What's the, the screenplay?" And at that point, Nashy was tapped out. He didn't have another script, uh, so he essentially kind of lied, and then spent <laughs> the next two days uh, keeping himself awake using amphetamines to write in a rush over a weekend the script that is Horror Rises from the Tomb. Good Lord. So when you see that it seems to just not stop and also not necessarily coherently move from one concept naturally flowing to the next, and yet the film still feels like a narrative that you're following quite easily, part of that is just because he was just trying to get the damn thing off. Uh, he's right. just as ideas came as ideas came to him, he incorporated them and got them down. And the, it's an incredibly inventive film. It is an entertaining movie. It is wackadoo, and it has some of the it has some images in it you'll never forget. It has my favorite substitute for a crucifix in the history of film. Um, its its cast is great. They, they, they do they know exactly what they're being required to do and they do it quite well it stars two of my favorite of Nashi's uh, uh, female female co-stars uh, the amazing Helga Lane who he would work with a few more times who is just astonishing she is uh, she is his uh, co-villain in this piece she plays Mobile Helga Lane is an incredible force on screen she often played villains and she was very good at it. She's this tall, red-headed beauty who can communicate more with a flick of her eyes than I probably can with 35 different words. Right. Um, <laughs> Emma Cohen, who is um, uh, one of the, the, the victims and, uh, shall we say, uh, someone who manages to find a way to survive this nightmare, is an absolutely incredibly talented young actress who did so much with her life that it is, if you learn, the more you learn about Emma Cohen, the more you'll be impressed. Plus, she's just incredibly good at getting your sympathies on her side immediately. Right. She is someone, who, yeah, she, she's just, she's, she's beautiful, she's talented, she's, in, she's incredible in this film. And uh, you do, you do, every time you watch this movie, because it was filmed in the winter, you do kind of want to step into the screen and wrap a blanket around her. But <laughs> the, uh, but the film is—it's it, amazing. It's almost—it's uh, it, almost required viewing for anybody wanting to really know what European horror cinema was in the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. I would consider this like a quintessential Paul Nashy film. Oh, certainly, certainly. There's a reason that I point that point people to this one as a good starting. point. Right, right. And um, you mentioned Emma Cohen, who plays uh, Elvira or Elvira. Um, do you want to talk about why um, Nashi uses the name Elvira quite a few times in his movies? Oh, yes. That is simply because that uh, Elvira is the name of Paul Nashi's beloved wife. Uh, he, uh, he married one time. Uh, she was the love of his life. And they were very happy together for the entirety of their lives. And um, Elvira is her sweet name. He would incorporate that name into screenplays whenever he felt it appropriate. And um, 
Uh, he, he, he did he did use other names reoccurringly as well, but Elvira is one that you will pop up that, that will pop in about eh, about every third movie that he writes. Right. <laughs> um, I just want to correct myself too. I misspoke. I, I had said that Carlos Alred uh, also directed Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, but he was the assistant director to uh, Leon Klamowski that you mentioned, Rod. So yes, yes, yes. I apologize for that gaffe. Well, the, the... D- don't worry, I will probably screw things up and re- have to correct myself at some point as well. <laughs> um, so what's one thing I love about this movie is that, it, and he does this in a few of the films, is uh, Nashi plays multiple roles. He's Alaric DeMarnak, Hugo DeMarnak, and Armand DeMarnak in this one. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> well, that that's one of the things that you'll find pretty quickly if you, if you watch more than a handful of all Nashi films is that he would go out of his way to write himself multiple roles. And often he wrote himself at least two roles so that he could play a good guy and a bad guy. This is, uh, well, I mean, to, to me it's just genius because it allows you <laughs> as one of the producers of the film and the person writing the script to, uh, to get to uh, shine in different ways. Uh, he's always great playing a villain. Um, and of course, that's the, 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 the thing that he that's the thing that he really does not necessarily get to do when he's playing the Wolfman because he's hit, he's hidden behind makeup and the character that is in, inside that beast really does not want to be a monster. But with Alaric de Marnac, uh, who's a character that he used again in a 1983 horror film called Panic Beats, uh, Alaric de Marnac is just pure evil. And so he gets to really let that that flag fly. It's a it's it's a great situation for him to be in. Because he gets to play a good guy who gets to be a victim, and he gets to play the evil, you know, beheaded and then resurrected uh, scumbag Alaric de Marnac as well. Uh, it's it, it's pretty great. He gets to to both menace and be menaced, and that happens a few times in uh, different films as his career goes on. I mean, you know, if you're gonna write yourself a good role, why not write yourself two good two good roles? I mean, right. <laughs> and I, I think I found one thing interesting was um, in the commentary, you guys, by the way, you and uh, Troy Gwynn did the commentary for this film on the Blu-ray. And um, I think Troy counted there was one death per every five minutes of the film, <laughs> which is awesome. Yes, he did. He did the math on that. It was great. <laughs> That's amazing. And there's two versions of this, right? There's the nude and then the non-nude version. Is that correct? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and what that is, is that is... Um, that is a, a, a strange thing that uh, only really kind of props up regularly in Spanish films produced during this period of time, the, the period of time before General Franco passed away in the, uh, the mid-70s, which is that um, they were, these movies were being made uh, primarily in Spain and with uh, Spanish money, so they would have to produce, for the scenes in which there were there was nudity, they would produce uh, the nude version, which would be what they refer to as the export version. In other words, the version of the film that would go out to the rest of the world. And then there would be the clothed version where they would shoot the exact same scenes with you know, some diaphanous clothing or some kind of covering of some type over the nudity. That was the version that would be shown in Spain because nudity was not allowed on movie screens at the time. Hmm. So you end up these days with... Um, Kind of you know the, those being alternate things that often on on video presentations you can, you can check out you can see it one way or another you can see the uh, the one version or another uh, those sequences uh, as an extra 
in some instances, uh, there, there, there is at least one film where no one's been able to turn up the export version of the movie, and all we have is the clothed version. And uh, I'm, I'm not too proud to, to claim that that is a, still to this day a, a real, real disappointment to me. But uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry, it's true. No, I agree. But, uh, that is, the, that is uh, why there will often be a clothed versus a non-clothed version. And, uh, you know, that, and of course, it, it, those clothed versions are all, also the ones that will sometimes end up uh, as uh, TV presentations as well. So, oh, good. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, either either the nudity would get snipped out in the way that nudity would often get snipped out of movies, or they would uh, they would use the clothed version as a TV edit, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, this is one of those movies. You know, I had seen it quite a while ago. I think I saw it probably shortly before I discovered your podcast. And um, you know, it it's just very atmospheric. Like you said, it is kind of balls to the walls crazy, but. Um, it's just, it's, it's a, what a good horror film should be, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there is a certain, um, forward momentum, but it never gets in the way of piling on the atmosphere and the creepiness and the, the just kind of, uh, it, 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 it's pretty much, it feels unwilling to let you get too comfortable for too long. And, uh, that, that is, that is one of its strengths. Uh, you know, it, it, these are the people who made this really kind of firing on all thrusters, even though, uh, you know, the, the script that, that generates the entire affair uh, was something that was written under the gun and under the influence of speed just to get it done, just to get it done, just to get it done. <laughs> his, his, his story about, uh, you know, popping amphetamines over the weekend uh, is in his autobiography. And it is just hilarious when you read it because he's just like, I got to get this done. There's no way around it. <laughs> crazy that's crazy all right rod so um i i highly recommend this movie as you mentioned it, it's definitely um the the one you should start with what do you, what are your final thoughts on uh uh the horror rises from the tomb um as much as i always insist that this is a great starting point um it it, it, it i almost always try to suggest more than just this one so that if they're curious, but it didn't particularly strike them as something they enjoyed, maybe you can entice them into either one of the werewolf films or one of the, or one of the crime films or something like that. So that so that they get a sense of not you know not everything he wrote was this crazy <laughs> because some some people respond <laughs> to it effectively and others others don't. For me, Our Rises from the Tomb is uh it, it will it will remain the one that i will just point to and go if you want to know where to start that's the place. awesome awesome all right folks we're going to take a short break here and then when we return we are going to talk about our next film the werewolf shadow also known as werewolf versus the vampire woman among other titles from 1971 a search for an ancient tomb of a witch takes a beautiful young girl on a mission that brings her to a house of madness. She is innocent of the dangers that surround her. The storm that rages outside is an omen of the reign of terror about to begin. A strange tale of the unknown world. A world of fear where the supernatural exists. Werewolf Shadow. The full moon of the Valpurgis night brings the vampires from their graves. The early sunrise drives them back to sleep in their tombs. 
Vampire versus werewolf in a battle to the death. See the werewolf terrorize the countryside. Blood revives a 400-year-old vampire witch. A strange love story that is destined to end in tragedy. A madwoman seeks revenge from all who come to the hidden valley. A policeman finds superstition and ignorance, creating a dead end to his investigation of the village's mysterious disappearances and deaths. Werewolf Shadow. No one can escape the vampires. Nothing can stop them. See the deadly curse that can only be destroyed by a loved one. Werewolf Shadow. The full moon gives power to the living dead. A beautiful young girl destroyed by evil forces. A stolen moment of love before death is to strike. A co-production of Hi-Fi Stereo and Plata Films. See vampires kill in their quest for blood. Blood, the essence of the living dead. See this film, if you dare. Okay, folks, um, actually, um, now that I think about it, before we get into our next film, Rod, I wanted to ask you, because it's not on our list of films that we were going to talk about, but... Why does Nashi's film Fury of the Wolfman not get the love that it deserves? Uh, because it does not deserve it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fury of the Wolfman is a mess of a film. Um, and Nashi would be, Nashi would have been first in line, maybe second and third in line to explain to you why. Uh, he, he, uh, he was very displeased with the, the person who ended up directing the film, who he described as a drunk. And, uh, the finished film is a nightmare. If you have any love of the character, um, it, it liberally uses, uh, sequences stolen wholesale from the, the, the first of the Valdemar Donetsky films to try to juice it up. And of course, the the sequences in, from one film to another do not fit each other. Um, there is someone else in some shots in Fury of the Wolfman who is playing the the werewolf character, and he's walking along as if he's just strolling down the park. <laughs> and uh, it's it, Fury of the Wolfman. Don't get me wrong; I understand for a lot of people that was their first point of contact with Paul Nashi because Fury of the Wolfman spent decades in public domain and I think it may still reside there I'm not positive hmm. but there, although there are things in Fury of the Wolf Man that I can enjoy watching oh my god is it a cluster 
it's just a mess. And uh, so, you know, as an aside, not my favorite Daninsky film. So, right, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing it as a kid on TV, and I enjoyed it. But yeah, I have to yeah, revisit yeah. that one to give it another look. See. So next up is a film with multiple titles, as many of these films do have. Uh, this one is uh, goes by Werewolf Shadow, also Walpurgis Night, Shadow of the Werewolf, and probably the one most people know it by is Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman from 1971. So I'm going to yes. give a brief synopsis here. <clears throat> Following the events of Fury of the Wolfman, the deceased lycanthrope Valdemar Daninsky is revived to life when two country doctors surgically remove two silver bullets from his heart while performing an autopsy on him. Valdemar transforms into a werewolf, kills the doctors, and escapes from the morgue. Sometime later, two students, Elvira, uh, and her friend Genevieve go searching for the tomb of the medieval murderess Countess Wandessa Darvula Dinadesti. <laughs> And I should have really reread these though before I did this. Um, they, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a blue ribbon for trying. Good job. <laughs> they find a possible gravesite in the vicinity of Valdemar Daninsky's castle, and the handsome count invites the girls to stay for a few days while they investigate the site. When Valdemar helps them to uncover the grave of Countess Wandessa, Elvira accidentally revives the vampire by bleeding onto her corpse. The vampire woman turns several young women, including Genevieve, into creatures of the night like herself, and they roam the forest at night, killing people in eerie slow motion. Daninsky later turns into the wolfman, is forced to battle and destroy the vampire countess at the end of the film, after which he's killed by Elvira, a woman who loves him enough to end his torment. Torment. She plunges a silver cross into his chest. So as I mentioned, uh, Leon, um, Leon, Leon Klamowski... Is it Leon or Leo? Did I? Leon. Leon. Okay, I thought so. Uh, he directed this film, and Carlos Allred was his assistant director. Um, and yeah, you mentioned uh, the slow motion. I That's one of the things I really enjoyed about this movie. It kind of had that black yellow quality where really effective, scary slow motion scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's the thing. Klamowski understood very well how to film things, not just to frame them properly and use a moving camera to to draw you into scenes, but also how to, how and when to use slow motion to give you an otherworldly feel, to amp up the supernatural aspect of what you were watching, and to uh, just make that tension grow. It's good stuff. He, he's, 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 an, he's an excellent director. Nashi had, had complaints about working with, with uh, Leon Klamowski, but it wasn't his ability to get good images and creepy things onto Right, right. And, you know, as you mentioned, too, that um, now she had an influence by the Universal horror films, particularly Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, sort of to start things off. And that opening sequence, even though it's not exactly the same, it's very reminiscent of that, where in the original movie, you've got, you know, the two grave robbers that come in. This time you've got two morticians that bring him back to life and end up getting gruesomely killed. Yep. Um, but there's so many other things too, like even the whole point of he has to be killed by s someone who loves him. You know, that was in what House of Frankenstein, I think. Well, it it it, it honestly, if if it was was it in House of Frankenstein, I've watched that movie so many times. I'm uh, trying to remember now. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's always been my feeling that this this wherever this came from, it always just flowered in the Daninsky storylines because that is that bizarre complicating factor 
in getting rid of the damn wolfman, which is, <laughs> you know, if if you are, you know, a werewolf hunter after your prey, it, it's not going to do you any good. You can pin him to the ground and put him in a and and, and immobilize him, but you haven't killed him. Uh, and uh, of course, the, this inevitably in you know drunken evenings talking with friends after watching one of these movies, or even while watching one of these movies, you start going, "Well, what if we were able to pin him down, kind of get him, get him immobilized, and then chop him into a lot of pieces? Are we good then? I mean, what what are our options on how to do away with this thing?" <laughs> it's uh, it gets it, it gets back to that uh, that old well, how many ways really are there to kill a vampire? Right, right. If, if we chop it into six parts. And then leave it laying there. Do we get six vampires? What do we get? I don't understand. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you remember the movie Monster Squad, the Wolfman gets blown up and all the pieces end up coming back together and reforming. Yeah, I know. Which is one of those great examples of people who grew up as monster kids finally getting to answer that question for themselves in their own story. It's like, well, this is what happens, buddy. It doesn't do you any good. Oh, man. So I have to say I was a little disappointed, um, not in the movie, but um, I ordered the Blu-ray for this and I thought it would be here in time for us to do the show and it wasn't. So I had to watch a version on, uh, I forget, one of the streaming services, which was that that shitty quality that we've seen over the years on TV. Um, However, I think that also added to the atmosphere of the film, too, because it did, for me at least, it harkened back to those days when you were wrestling with the antenna at, you know, 11 o'clock at night to try and get in the scary movie on on a local channel. And so that didn't really bother me. I just would have, I would like to have seen the, you know, a cleaned up version of it. I assume you have, right? Oh, definitely. And that that Blu-ray that Vinegar Syndrome put out is, is astonishing. Yeah. Um, it's it's it, we were so happy when that got announced because for the past few years there've only been a, a few hand, you know a few holdouts uh, in the uh, the Daninsky saga that aren't available on Blu-ray and when that one got announced we were just we we were uh, Troy and I and four, and four or five others of us who were ma- massive Nashi fans were messaging back and forth and going yes 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 thank God. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to get that because I do. Um, I am going to take another look at it because I really enjoyed this film. I forgot how, how just how much fun this film is, whether it's in good quality or not. Oh yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the cast? I mean, we've got Gabby Fuchs as Elvira, Patty Shepard as the Countess, Barbara Capel as Genevieve. Well, the the cast is really good. Uh, a few of these actresses he only worked with uh, once or twice. Uh, Patty Shepard is the real standout. Uh, Countess Vandessa, the evil vampire woman who uh, <laughs> manages to manages to corrupt a few other of the female members of the cast, uh, and uh, the her her performance. Well, first of all, Patty Shepard is just she she was an amazing talent and someone who, uh, as soon as I know that she's in a film, I already know that there's something I'm going to enjoy in it. She's a uh, she's one of those uh, American actors who ended up making the vast majority of her films in Europe and actually with, with Patty Shepard, actually the majority of her stuff was made in Spain. Uh, you know, not that she didn't make Italian and French film. It's just that the mo- most of the stuff that she made was, was made in, uh, in Spain. And Patty Shepard is very, very good. Not just a, a lovely lady, but also someone who's really good on screen. Right. Uh, you can, ca- you can catch her in so many phenomenal movies over the years. And like I say, she was, uh, she had previously already worked with Nashi in, the second Daninsky film, um, uh, Assignment Terror. Right. She was she she was in that, and um, 
the uh, she she's also in a couple of the uh, shall we say more more interesting Spanish horror films that are now getting more attention. Things like The Witch's Mountain, and uh, she was also in some uh, some giallos like I'm Your Killer. She was in spaghetti westerns. She was in uh, American-made westerns that just happened to be shot in Spain too. She gets to play a really great villainous black-hatted character uh, in a uh, film called uh, The Man Called Noon from 1973, where she, uh, she she's on screen with people like Richard Crenna and Stephen Boyd, and she's just a, she's a blast in that as well. Right. Uh, uh, some people might have seen her turn up in. The, the Stranger and the Gunfighter, which is a Lee Van Cleef oh, yeah. uh, spaghetti western from uh, the mid-70s. Yeah. She is amazing. Um, she, she's, she's, she's very good in this, and this is such a great role for her to be able to, uh, to, be, to be able, uh, sh- shall we say, to be pure evil itself and have that slow-motion camera enhance everything that she does. It's, it's, it's great. It's amazing stuff. Uh, the rest of the cast is very good. Gabby Fuchs is an actress who uh, he did not work with. Very, uh, uh, I don't think he actually worked with her ever again, but it's a shame. She's very good at this. And of course, this is something that I'll just briefly touch on this because it's kind of amusing when you think about it. One of the reasons why some actors would get cast in certain roles is because they would have a different look and often they would have a different hair color. This was often a casting decision because uh, having someone with a very different look and especially hair color would make it easy for an audience, say at a drive-in or someone not necessarily paying total attention to what was going on, to be able to keep in mind exactly what character was what. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's easy to know who Patty Shepard's playing. She's the villain, it's obvious. And she's only around when slow motion's going on. Yeah. But... We, but the difference between the visual looks of Gabby Fuchs and Barbara Capel really stand out. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 there are films, there, there's, there's one particular film of, of Nash's that we won't talk about in detail today, Count Dracula's Great Love, where there are these three actresses who very clearly were cast because they look, they look different from each other. All three gorgeous ladies, but the different colors that they're dressed in on screen as well emphasize how easy it is to tell them apart. And uh, that is true here as well. Gabby Fuchs was never going to be mistaken for either Patty Shepard or Barbara Capel. And it's absolutely right. fascinating. Also, there's a there's a there's an interesting aspect to the reluctant werewolf that's that pops up in this, which is that there is a, a character in this film who is kind of a minder and a helper, uh, kind of a almost a Renfield character to the Daninsky character right? Uh, who is identified as Elizabeth Daninsky. Uh, and uh, the character doesn't, doesn't stay around long. She ends up, uh, she ends up buying it at a certain point <laughs> as you would expect. But uh, that is not something that would reoccur very often where there would be a, a, a minder or helper uh, for the character. But uh, you can see that as uh, something that is being played with in this storyline that he didn't necessarily keep up as things went on because the it, it doesn't it doesn't really work long term. You know, uh, Dracula needs a Renfield. The werewolf just does not. And so it's interesting to see that pop up as uh, something that, that gets discarded. But, you know, 
it doesn't change anything about what you can or can't enjoy about the film. It's just another little interesting piece. She's used, uh, she's used as you would expect in a story like this, to, to, to drop information into the unknowing character's ears and let them know what's going on to the degree. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and this, this movie's full of iconic shots, too. You know, it's just... Oh, yeah. I, I mentioned this about Horror Rises from the Tomb, but this one also, this is how a horror movie is done. It's got every element that you need, every ingredient to make a really entertaining and scary horror film, I think, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in, 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 the, in that vein of, uh, oh, okay, so it's a werewolf versus a, a vampire woman story. Yeah, but that's not the only thing you get. You also get, at one point, a skeletal zombie Yep. That, that assaults uh, that assaults uh, Nashi's character, and, and that you know, and it, it is like, oh, you know, guess what? You weren't expecting. Here you go. You know, is that the one that kind of looked like one of the blind dead? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, re- really creepy looking thing, and it, once again, it's just it's it's often easy to to categorize these as uh, throwing in a lot of di- uh, different elements just to uh, just because they could. Or just to keep you off balance, and to, and and to my mind, that's just another tip of the hat to the filmmakers. Yeah, keep me off balance. <laughs> Do it now. Oh man! And of course, you know one of one of uh, Valdemar Daninsky's powers is that knives don't penetrate his leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is one of the things that I, I do love that they play with uh, occasionally in the films, which is that he will get into, as Daninsky, he will get into these fights with people, and 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 they're they're you know he's not a werewolf at the time, you know he's not transformed, and th- there's this uh, there's this part of me that over the years has started to wonder is like is the reason he ends up in so many fights is because he knows they can't kill him. I mean, it's just maybe is this. He's got kind of a certain level of invulnerability. They're not going to be able to off him, so he can take he can take a little bit of damage or just get roughed up, and he'll still prevail here. Yeah, and his werewolf too is doesn't always bite and claw. He he's um, not not against doing fisticuffs, you know. No, no, no. He will he will shove, push, yank, and throw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I do like that that Valdemar, he's not only well-versed in, in werewolves, but he also knows everything about vampires, too, which was key to the plot, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, it's like you know, I'm, I'm willing to give it to him because I guess if you're just, you know, soaking in the supernatural, trying to find a way to extract yourself from it, you do soak up a lot of other information. Right, right. Oh, man. So, like I said, this movie's uh, amazingly creepy and atmospheric. I highly recommend it. Um, you know, this, like I said, it was a throwback to watching low quality horror films on late night TV, which I think is a huge part of the charm. Although I, I know that the high quality versions, you know, probably superior. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. So Rod, what are your final thoughts on werewolf versus the vampire woman? Uh, there's a reason that it is the, the film that made him a star. This is the first huge hit that he had as, and it's what, it's what turned him into an international horror movie star. And when you see it these days, it's easy to understand. Uh, once this movie was uh, start, started making the kind of money that it started to make, uh, his next uh, his next five to six years were make, it, it, making as many movies as he could to the point where there are some years where he's making um, five or six different movies. Um, not necessarily all of them that he's written, but he was hot. 
he was making movie after movie. And this is the one that jump-started it all. Nice, nice. All right, folks. Well, that was our discussion of Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, also known as Werewolf Shadow. We're going to take a quick break, and then we are going to come back and discuss The Mummy's Revenge, also known as Vengeance of the Mummy from 1975. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. something bitter is bothering you. You can tell me what it is, my dear. Helen, I know how to understand you. My father is a paralytic and I'm responsible. I told father not to go. The weather was awful that night. But he insisted that he accompany me. When we returned afterwards, the horses weren't wild and father was dragged beneath them. Helen? You're not to blame. Believe that. Everything was written. 
Finally, I shall have my eternal liberty. Soon, my beloved Amarna will be by my side once more. A pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. The Foundation never dreamed of such a valuable piece. It's a discovery of world importance. And we're the ones responsible for it. I'm sure that the papyrus scroll you found will give us the answer to this mystery. We'll study it in London. It will be fascinating work. And Dr. Douglas will collaborate with us. Okay, folks, now we're going to tackle The Mummy's Revenge from 1975. Uh, here's a brief synopsis. After the cruel Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep's mummy was discovered and transported to London, his distant relatives travels from Egypt to England in order to resurrect his body. In order for Amenhotep to achieve immortality, Asad Bey has to kidnap nubile young virgins in Victorian London for blood sacrifices. And... I think I'm correct on this. Carlos Alred did direct this one. Is that correct? Yes, that is very true. Okay. And uh, we've got Nashi in a couple of roles here again as Amenhotep and Asad Bey, um, which, you know, I, once again, he he's just having so much fun. And he, you could, like, this whole opening is the backstory of what happens to him and how he becomes a mummy. And he's just in his glory, just standing there with yes. his hands on his hips and his buff body, you know, going, yep, I'm the Pharaoh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a blast of a film. And this is, this is one of the things that um, I get, I get, I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of ribbing from my podcasting partner on the, the Nashi films, because um, I am a huge fan of mummy movies. I can't, I can't define exactly why there's something about them that really appeal to me and they always have. Yeah. But for, for Troy, he, he feels that uh, mummy films are automatically one to two steps down from every other kind of genre film. And he never takes it. Uh, he never takes uh, a chance to miss an opportunity. He will not miss an opportunity. Let's see if I can find a circular way to say that again. Uh, <laughs> he will always find the opportunity to make fun of me for my mummy love as he describes it. And so uh, this is one of uh, my favorite of his films from that, that, that early 70s heyday because, it, it, I mean, it has everything that I want in a mummy movie and it has more. Uh, it has everything I want and graphic head depression. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is another instance of him just being on fire and getting to do a different kind of monster. Uh, yeah, and once again, he gets to he gets to essentially kind of play uh, the early version of the character and then the later version of the character. So essentially, kind of playing two different versions of the same creature. Uh, at first, as a human being, before uh, he he's uh, turned into the mummy, and then he gets to stomp around as the mummy. And added to it, he gets to play the he gets, he gets to play the descendant who is attempting to. Uh, to uh, facilitate the, re the, uh, the the resurrection of the mummy's beloved, uh, it, it's it's a tangled web, even and it's also fun. But the 
the the fact that this is another, this is one that actually uh, takes place uh, in uh, in London. Uh, not that they shot any of it in London, but it takes place in <laughs> London in the late 1800s. Therefore, it's a period piece. Uh, you have this uh, th- this you have the return you have the return of Helga Linnae as uh, uh, the the cohort in crime helping out trying to get all these things uh, done for the evil mummy. Uh, and of course, she's always wonderful, very good here. And um, the uh, this movie has one of my favorite things that you just don't expect to show up in these kind of movies, which is that um, we have a husband and wife Victorian detective team. It almost seems like yes, yeah. We, we have a husband and wife played by uh, uh, well, well. Let, let's put it this way: I've always referred to them from the first time we discussed this movie as kind of the the. The Nick and Nora Charles, the Thin Man, there you go. Uh, the Thin Man characters, um, hunt, you know, hunting down this mummy in London. And honestly, every time I rewatch it, that feels more and more accurate because I don't know that that was necessarily the template that Nashi was using to build these characters. But man, it had to be pretty close because that's <laughs> the way it feels throughout. Uh, and of course, the the husband of the pair was played is played by the, the legendary American actor Jack Taylor, right. who was in more movies than you and I will probably ever know exist. Right. Uh, Jack Taylor, uh, American actor who, once again, much like Patty Shepard, spent the vast majority of his career in Europe, and once again for him, primarily in Spain. He found his niche. And stayed there. Uh, Jack Taylor, though, is somebody you would have spotted in other films that just uh, also were shot in Spain. He has a small role as the uh, the uh, the gay priest in Conan the Barbarian in 1982 that yeah. uh, that 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 Conan steals his clothing from. And uh, oh man, he was also in uh, the, uh, the 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 Ninth Gate in uh, the early 2000s. Um, Oh, yeah. He was in 1492 he, for Ridley Scott in the 90s. He was in pieces, uh, right? Oh yes, he was definitely in. He was definitely in pieces, doing his best to not emote much at all, so that he could still be considered a viable option to be the killer. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, but Jack Taylor is just—he's—he's he's one of those joys. As soon as you have seen him in enough movies, he is always a bright spot because you're just happy to see him, regardless of whether you're going to. For some reason, be watching a film where you're going to see him really completely nude for long stretches of time, and that 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 can be a, an up or down decision on you on you there. You can make <laughs> that choice yourself. But you could have a really good uh, month or two just following the films that uh, Jack Taylor was in: Vampires Night, Orgy, Vengeance of Doctor Mabusa. Yeah, almost you know more. I would say close to a dozen, if not more. Films by Jess Franco, including Count Dracula with uh, with uh, Christopher, Christopher Lee. Lee. Yeah. I mean, the the Jack Taylor. As soon as you see him, I, it, just, it puts a smile on my face. At least. So this movie has got a lot of things going for it. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Spanish actors, Eduardo Eduardo Calvo. Cal, I'm sorry, Eduardo Calvo shows up here as Sir Douglas Carter. And uh, he's he plays one of those classic, um, classic roles in these movies where he's the elder statesman with lots of it, you know, with lots of knowledge and information. And yeah. The, uh, the the mummy at one point ends up stalking him in his home. It, 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 
there's there's a lot of talent on on screen here, and there's a this movie to me tells a great story. It's very effectively directed. Uh, it is beautiful to look at. There was a uh, Blu-ray of it that came out a few years ago. I think it may be difficult to get your hands on nowadays, which is a shame uh, because it, it is it is one of my, it is one of my favorites from this period, regardless of how much I get laughed at for loving movies. <laughs> it's just it's a it's a heck of a story, and it's very well done. Yeah, and it's uh, it, to uh, to a, to a degree now that it's harder to get that Blu-ray in your, in your hand. It's going back into the to the realm of kind of a little bit of a hidden gem, but if you can get a chance to see the Mummy's Revenge, well, it was I think it was made in 1973. Uh, recommended, highly recommended. Yeah, it's it's very much like a Hammer film, but it takes the 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 Hammer level of violence and you know ratchets it up tremendously. Oh yeah, and it also has the benefit of. Well, the same way that the Hammer films were able to in the seventies to to not shy away from the sexuality of the characters as well. So. Right, right. Um, you know, and like I said, you know, now she's in his glory here, and it, I, I, it gets very meta when you've got Nashi as the bandaged mummy ordering ordering around Nashi the descendant. <laughs> it's yep. like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's 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 this, uh, and then you start to see the conflict. Within the descendant, about uh, about you know how how much he wants to cooperate and, and how well he's cooperating, and, and it becomes this it becomes this uh, this very interesting push and pull at, at points. And the entire time, it's just I think it's it's one of those entertaining horror movies. You're not going to get bored with it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And like you mentioned, you know, there's, I mean, skulls getting crushed and, you know, the old men getting tossed into the fireplace. And there's even sort of a Dr. Fibes-like scene where the mummy kisses the girl. And you're like, ew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't unsee that it, now. I know, I know. And it's, 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 it's such an entertaining film. I will admit <clears throat> that this is uh, one of the few of the films made during this period by Nashie. In which we do not have the nude version. <clears throat> the we only have the clothed version of the uh, the sequences that involve nudity. Hmm. And uh, I will state right up front that is a disappointment. Yes, yeah, exactly. They, they, they people have been hunting for it for years at this point, and it just has not turned up for one reason or another. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. You know, one other thing I want to mention about this movie is that I just love stories set in Victorian England. Where it's a group of good guys battling the forces of evil. And, you know, like I mentioned Monster Squad before, too. This reminds me of that opening sequence in Monster Squad where Van Helsing and his men come in and they're mm-hmm. fighting against Dracula and his, his brides and everything. And it's just it's the same kind of thing, except it's with the mummy. And, you know, I'm not going to laugh at you, Rod, because I love the mummy movies, too. One of my favorites is actually the second Universal one. I think it's The, the Mummy's Hand. Oh, uh, Mummy's Hand, I think, is the, it's the, well, you can call it the second or the first of that, that, that of the four, that yeah. Quartet of, that quartet in the 40s, yeah. I love that one. You've got the. Oh, Mummy's Hand is great. Uh, even people who, even, even people who generally make fun of uh, what Mummy movies became after the 32 classic will, will, uh, will nod their head and say, okay, well, Mummy's Hand pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And this movie kind of has a Shaw Brothers ending where it, like, just ends. <laughs> There's no denouement. It's just over. Well, I mean that's been uh, that's been one of the ongoing jokes about uh, at least with my circle of friends about European uh, European horror films or at least the the monster movies and especially the Nashi films, which is 
Uh, well, we, we started making the joke in Hammer movies, uh, which is, uh, you know, Monster Dead movie over. Uh, and and I, I've often made the joke, which isn't too far off the beam, which is, you know, the monster is still writhing on the ground, bleeding from a, ch- a sucking, gaping chest wound, and the credits start to roll over that. It's like, <laughs> like hold on a minute. Can't we have a little something here at the end? Yeah, yeah. It's too bad, too, because I would have liked to have seen, you know, Nashi and Linnea's characters do a couple sequels to this. That would have been kind of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would I would have loved to have seen another, you know, if he if he wanted to, like, advance the timeline and, like, have another story taking place in the 20s or 30s, that would have been great, too. But it was not to be. We only got the one mummy movie from Nashi. I just I'm just so happy that it is that it's so well done and so enjoyable. Right, right. All right, folks. Well, that was part one of our uh, 2023 13 Days of Hallow-Tober, in which we discussed Paul Nashi and uh, several of his movies, including his werewolf movies. Uh, join us again for part two, where we're going to talk about The Hunchback of the Morgue, The Devil Incarnate, also known as El Caminante, and Werewolf and the Yeti. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today's episode of this year's 13 Days of Hallowtober. Don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our other shows, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films and spaghetti westerns from the 60s to the 80s, and the Cult Movie Lounge, where we talk about all cult movies all the time. And check out our live monthly streaming show, Fright Lounge, in which the best horrorologists in town discuss horror media for the seasoned horror fan, as well as introducing newbies to the genre. And at our website, you can also find my blogs, Then Is Now, The Films of John Saxon, and Horror Films of the 1970s. If you like what you're hearing, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that other listeners can find us. Thank you for joining us today, and have a wonderful October. Network at thedorkening.com.